Welcome to the weekly message from Rama Family Church. It is our hope that as you listen to this message, you will come to know Jesus better and be established in your faith and equipped for the work of the ministry. You can view the sermon notes and listen online at rhema.org.au forward slash media. Praise the Lord. Well, we're going to get on into the Word of God today. And uh, I wanted to tell a testimony. You know, last Sunday night there was a, um, a time of healing on the second Sunday of every uh, month we have healing, and then um, uh, tonight will be prayer. Well, last Sunday night, there were people who were healed. We had hands laid on them, but Christine Hudson gave me a testimony, and I just had to smile uh, because she's had so many testimonies. It seems like the healer is just working on one organ after another. <laughs> and she keeps receiving different and beautiful Beautiful healings, and uh, I trust I got all the details of this, but she went to the eye doctor, normal exam, and, and um, she asked the doctor who had told her in her previous exam that she was going to need to have cataracts removed. And so in this one, she asked the doctor, she said, so tell me, you know, what do I need to do to get that going uh, for the cataracts to be removed? And he said, what cataracts? You don't have cataracts. <laughs> she said, well, you said I did. But anyway, they are gone. I love that Jesus is our family physician. He's not just, uh, when we're talking about our GP, it's not a general practitioner. It's the good practitioner. Praise the Lord. And he is, he is, uh, he never runs into a difficult case, let alone an impossible one. So praise the Lord, he is the healer. Amen. Okay, well, we're going to get on into uh, the word of God today. And, of course, I mentioned that we're coming up into Easter. Next Sunday will be Palm Sunday. For those that follow those things, it's just like the, uh, the volume or the light gets brighter. Uh, these are truths that praise the Lord, that once you know the truth about it, you can actually uh, enjoy the truth and partake of the truth every day of the year. We don't celebrate the resurrection just one time a year. Aren't you glad that there's no restriction to celebrate and Jesus is alive? Amen. But not only that Jesus is alive, but everything that was accomplished in the whole passion uh, leading up to his resurrection. Um, one of the things that is so, so precious that happened before Jesus went to the cross and even before he went to Pilate's judgment hall is what happened in the garden. I've gotten to go to Israel uh, four times and have gone to Gethsemane all four of those times, and the, the gravity of, of what happened there. Actually, if we didn't have what was accomplished in the garden, uh, nothing else would have happened. Everything was leveraged on what Jesus did in the garden between him and his father. What happened after the garden included, you know, 
uh, Judas betraying him included, uh, soldiers included, um, jealous religious leaders and different people, uh, all the different people that were in the story. But what happened in the garden was between God and Jesus. And it was so, so, so precious. Um, and so artists have depicted this the, over time. Uh, this is a picture I saw when I was a little girl. I don't know, maybe some of you remember uh, this or a version of this. Um, Heinrich Hoffman in 1890 drew this religious painting. And I remember seeing this as a little girl and observing his face, uh, you know, his concerned face and upturned towards the Lord and, and talking to his father. Um, more recently um, would have been another perspective a bit different, a bit more dramatic, and I would, yeah, I would even submit it more accurate, actually, uh, that would have happened um, in a lot of different artists and a lot of different ones that have put into picture this garden agony. And so Mel Gibson's in The Passion of the Cross, this was his impression of w the gravity of that time, which is not just and depicts more than just concern and anxiety. Uh, it's more of a picture of agony. And, and so what Jesus did in the garden was absolutely uh, essential and imperative. Today we had uh, dedication of babies where parents presented and dedicated themselves and their babies to the Lord. Um, the garden experience was a demonstration of one of the kinds of prayers that are taught in the Bible, and there quite, there's a number of different types of prayers that have um, different characteristics to them. But the kind of prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden was a prayer of consecration and dedication. So we're going to look into um, we're going to look into this prayer in the Bible. And before we do, I just want to draw your attention that on your seat there are some flyers that look like this. On them is called the Easter Experience. Um, Caleb mentioned that on Sunday we're going to be celebrating Easter together and uh, so celebrating, I think we re really we do celebrate, honestly, celebrate Jesus' um, redemptive work and resurrection I'd say every single Sunday there's something about it. Don't you guys think that? We sing it, we say it in some way. But on Easter, we're going to join with churches absolutely around the world, and all of our voices are going to be praising the fact that uh, Jesus did what he did for us, and God raised him from the dead. But... Um, uh, one of the elements of our, our gathering together, our, our service together, is going to be um, something different and something really special. And Caleb, who um, he is in ministers and heads up our young adults, but um, 
and did a, a wonderful job today with communion. But he's actually an amazing artist. And so the days leading up to um, Easter, starting on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, they're going, this room is going to be transformed into an art gallery. And it's going to be a walkthrough of these important um, events that led Jesus right up to the cross and then being raised from the dead. It won't be um, like Mel Gibson's, uh, which I think was uh, stunning and amazing and so impacting, but it won't be R-rated. You can invite little kids, you invite your friends and family, but it will absolutely yeah, give you the opportunity to look at this Easter experience through Jesus' eyes instead of somebody looking at Jesus the way that the Lord put it on Caleb's heart to, to actually create these um, exhibit is to let us look through Jesus' eyes. Don't you think that's going to be lovely? So invite your friends, invite your family, and then for us as a church family, uh, pieces of this art exhibit will be here on Sunday morning, and we get to see it all together. So I just wanted to let you know that. Uh, now, when Tony talked last week about things that produce stability, he, wanted, he wants to talk over a period of time over things that uh, help make us stable in life. He identified one one of those things that help us to be stable. And the one that he identified is when we can know what God will do. Well, what difference does that mean? What difference does it make if you know what God will do? Well, it's the difference between being stable and not stable. If you don't know what God will do, if you never know uh, what you can count on him about, it, it ends to an instable, and, and Caleb, if you could please come up again and help me demonstrate this. Um, what knowing what Tony shared last week will help do is give you two legs instead of one to stand on. Because if only one leg, which you, if you can demonstrate your tremendous athletic ability here, where uh, for a while, if I made him stand the whole service like this, I'm sure he wouldn't appreciate it. We could see how long he could manage on the strength of one leg. But I'm sure he could stand there for a little while. He'd be a little wobbly, wobbly, wobbly. But if somebody, cruel and mean like me, uh, evil influence from the outside comes along and pushes him on one leg, I mean, I'm a girl. I pushed him over. It doesn't take anything to push somebody over that's standing on one leg. Why? There's not stability there. However, on two legs planted, even, you know, if I put my strength into it, if I try to push him over, it's not happening because there's stability there. Thank you, Caleb. What knowing what God, what you can count on God to do actually gives stability um, to your life. Think about this. 
if I were to say about my husband, and thank God I don't, I, I don't have to say that at all. This is totally whack. But if I were to tell you in describing my husband, I never know what he's going to do. You just never know what Tony's going to do. From day to day, I never know what he's going to do. I don't, you know, in any kind of situation, I never know what Tony's going to do. I never know what he's going to say. I never know what he's going to do. What kind of a man do you think he would be? That's a, that'd be a horrible thing. And yet somehow we shift those kind of descriptions and characteristics uh, to God and say, you never know what God will do. And somehow, suddenly, that's holy and sanctimonious. If you were to say those things about a human, it would be an insult. But you say those things about God, and it's like, ooh. No, it is not complimentary to never know, never be reliable, never, never be the kind of person that can be trusted and depended the word, you never know what they really mean. Their yes could be no, their no could be yes. And it isn't holy or sanctimonious to put that on God. Basically, as we saw from this scripture last week, it's actually not even true. So Tony ended with 1 John, the fifth chapter, in verse 14. And 15, and we're going to start with that verse today. Let's look into it because there's some strong words in this portion of scripture. And it says, Now, this is the confidence. Can we just say that word confidence? Yeah, that's a strong word that we have in Him. So, not, not guessing. <laughs> no, this is the confidence that we have in Him. That if, now if is not a confident word, if is a kind of a dubious word. You just don't know about if. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. So in this verse, there's the word confidence and know and know. The only the only words that are uh, variable are the words if, and it is associated with if we know his will. You can know, you can be confident if you know his will. So why wouldn't you know his will? If we don't know his will, we don't have confidence in him. We're walking on eggs. We're hoping, hoping and a praying. Shooting a prayer out there and hoping something hits. Maybe it'll work. But mostly, if you just don't know, you're looking for somebody who seems like they do and end up a lot of times delegating all your prayers to somebody else that seems like they know what they're doing, that has confidence. Do you know God wants all of his kids to be confident. As a parent, as a parent, 
Does it, wouldn't it grip your heart if some of your kids felt really confident around you and could talk to you and ask you for things and love you and touch you? And then there's another one of your children that creeps around the walls. And, and they see you looking at them and they scamper and go into another room. What does that say? How, how awful. God doesn't mean for any of his kids to be unsure around him. He's a father. He wants us to be confident and know some things when we're around him. If we don't know his will, we don't have confidence in him. And if we don't know if he hears us, uh, then we don't know if we'll get our prayers answered. That's the negative spin on 1 John, the fifth chapter. But if we know his will, we have confidence. And we know he hears us, and we know that we will have the petitions that we desired of him. So this word, uh, if it be thy will, we're going to really dive into that today. Because Jesus said it, so shouldn't we all pray it? If Jesus prayed, if it be thy will, seems like the good go-to prayer. Seems like the prayer you should just pray about everything. So we're going to just kind of dig into that. If it be thy will. Now, I'd like you to look at this phrase. Doubt, or I mean faith, begins... Faith is the opposite of doubt. Faith begins where the will of God is known. Where the will of God is known. Confidence is dependent and leveraged on knowing his will. I think sometimes we jump into prayer and request things sometimes premature. Some hadn't, hadn't done some pre, haven't done some uh, preparatory work, haven't done some uh, investigating before we make a request or before we pray. Think about it. If you were, if you had a lawyer representing you in court, and um, and they are, they are your best friend because they are your defense attorney. They are your advocate. And something is leveled against you, different things are leveled against you, and your advocate is saying, hmm, I wonder what the law has to say about that. It's, and they're scrambling around. Seems like I heard something in law school. I don't know, maybe I did. And then they start talking to the prosecuting attorney. What, what do you think should happen? And then they ask the judge, I don't know. What do, what do you think on this? That'd be terrible. And so sometimes I think that in prayer, uh, we, we start our prayer without knowing the will. So that's why we have to slap a, if it be thy will. <laughs> because we didn't take time to find out. The Bible does tell us what his will is, what his ways are. There are things regarding his purpose and plans for your life that are not written in verses of scripture. And we're going to see where 
we put, if it be thy will, in the right place. I'm going to show you uh, if it be thy will in the wrong place first. Is that okay? And then we'll look at it in the right, in the right place. Years ago, uh, in healing school, we used to do healing school on a daily basis, Monday through Friday. Thursdays, we would lay hands on people, leaving Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, to, uh, and, and even Thursday before we prayed for people, as opportunity for them to hear the will so they would know what the will is, so that when they would come to receive hands laid on them, they wouldn't be up there thinking, well, I'll get something if it's his will. Do you see the difference? So we'd want them to know what the will is so that when they come to receive, they would be confident, not wondering, but confident to receive. Well, this particular day, and it wasn't open, this session was not open to anybody uh, that was not actually sick. This was only open to people who were ill. So um, about the middle of the session, there was uh, a woman come in uh, with her daughter, her grown daughter and grandchild. And they sat kind of in the back, uh, not on the back row, but where you guys are, like right there, and, and I noticed them while I was teaching about his will. So we look into the book to find out what the will is so that we don't have to say, if it's your will. When it's already written there, we can know. So I uh, asked, or I was noticing these people while I was teaching, and I saw that the, the grandbaby probably... Uh, 10, 11 months old, uh, was something was wrong with her. At first, you know, noticing she had blonde, curly hair, darling little, little girl. And, um, and then I noticed that the little girl at that month, at that age, couldn't hold her head up. And that, that's not right. But that something isn't right. At the end of the service, the, the grandmother, mother, and grandbaby came up, and, and so I started asking questions. I, they had just come from the Mayo Clinic, and they had had examination for the baby. They had never been in a healing service before. The things that I had said that they heard me say about the will of God, they'd never heard before, ever heard be, that before. They knew God could if he wanted to, Maybe, you know, that he works in mysterious ways, but they didn't, they had never heard his will. And so I said, um, they were telling me about what they discovered at the, uh, from this latest examination. What the baby had been born with was a defect in the brain that made the baby incessantly chew was constantly chewing, and so even from a young age, that baby would just be constantly chewing and had little by little bitten off pieces of its own, her own lips and tongue. The mother showed me a piece of, I, didn't, I can't remember which it was, but it was a, either a piece of a lip or a tongue. She showed me in the baby's mouth where a chunk of the tongue was gone, piece by piece. 
She said that that, that the diagnosis of the brain being defected in that way, the prognosis was really sad. I mean, the diagnosis was horrible. The prognosis was just equally as horrible. All they could give this mother as a, a way to deal with it is to pull the teeth as soon as they came out. So as soon as the little baby teeth would start to come, they'd pull. So sad. And drugged the baby so that the baby was so listless that didn't have real strength to chew. The, the, the baby had been over-medicated one time and it damaged the brain. And so, you know, I could see the damage of being over-medicated. Oh, I just can't even tell you. <laughs> I mean, I still remember it. Whoa! Seeing that, that, you know, the grandmother and the mother and holding that little baby. Huh. And that's all you're given. That's all we can do. I said, have you ever had prayer? Has anybody ever prayed? They said it was the first time they'd ever been in anything like that. I said, has anybody ever prayed for you? They said, oh yeah, we've prayed. We've prayed. We've prayed that if it was God's will to heal the baby, that he, he would. If it's God's baby or God's will to take the baby to heaven, that, that he would give us grace. If it was God's will to, for this baby just to live this way the rest of its life, that we would have grace to deal with it. Or we prayed that it would, if it was God's will to somehow, some way, do a miracle, that he would. Both of these things were so troubling. <laughs> they're so sad. So they, they had to leave. They couldn't stay anymore. They had to leave, but they had heard some truth. Can we just say, the truth makes you free? Praise the Lord. Aren't you? And where do we find the truth? We find the truth in the living word, who is the truth, and we find the truth in the written word. So five years later, well, I never forgot that little girl. I never forgot her. Still, I can see her. But five years later, I was in uh, Panama City, Beach, Florida, and a woman came up to me at the end of the service and she said, do you remember me? I said, no, I'm sorry, <laughs> I can't remember you. She said, well, maybe you'd remember a little girl, uh, a little baby that was brought to healing school with a problem with incessant chewing. I said, oh yeah, I remember that. Never forget that. And she said, I want to show you something. And she turned around, and there was a little blonde-haired girl. She called her up, and that little girl said, I love Jesus. I said, what happened? Because obviously, the little one that I saw in her the mother's arms, something had happened. 
she said, let me tell you the story. They went back to the hotel after that day in healing school. And the mother, before putting the baby to bed that night, was going to put the normal shot that she would give the baby to, to drug her. And as she had the syringe up to the baby, the syringe flew out of her hand. And she thought, that's odd. So she prepared another syringe to give the baby a shot. And the baby has grown dependent on that medicine now. Put the syringe up to the baby's to, to give it to her, and it flew out of her hand the second time. And the mother began to cry. She said, God, are you trying to tell me something? She said, I have to know if this is you because if I, if I don't give the baby this shot, her body is dependent on this medicine and I, I could endanger her life if I don't give. You have to help me know if this is you. She prepared the third time the syringe, put the syringe up to the baby, and for the third time it flew out of her hand. And that baby was completely healed. That mother hadn't been in a whole seminar on healing. She heard just a little bit of God's will. Hallelujah. When you know the will of God, it changes everything. So, what was Jesus' situation, and why did he pray it? Why did he pray it? He knew the will of God. Jesus did know the will of God. He had found himself in the scripture as early as John 3, 6, uh, John 3, 14. You know, John 3, 16, the famous, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him will not perish but have everlasting life. What comes before John 3, 16 is John 14 and 15. Yeah, okay, I'm smart. I know my numbers. Okay, so John 14. As Moses was lifted up in the wilderness, or as that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus was saying that about himself. In other words, yes, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, but not just to blow kisses. Jesus had to die. He had to be tortured on account of not just our sin, but the damages from that sin that had affected our bodies, our souls, our gender, our families. Every area of our life was fractured because of sin. And Jesus and everything that came on him was God's reversal and redemption to what we did against our own selves. <laughs> Aren't you thankful for the plan of God? But it wasn't cheap. It didn't come just cheap. So when Jesus was in the garden, when he was in the garden, he was looking at that cup. 
in Matthew 26, starting with verse 36. Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. Now, those are not words that describe, if you were ever to describe Jesus, you would not describe him as anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He invited his disciples to help him pray, which they kept falling asleep. But those words that describe Jesus, anguished, distressed, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here. I tell you what his disciples had been more acquainted with him. Watching Jesus be uh, crushed with this agony of, of what was uh, approaching him. And it wasn't just the physical aspect of what he was going to face. It was this little girl's sickness that he was preparing to take because God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Romans put stripes on him, but when Romans put stripes on him, God laid our sickness on him. That's what God saw, and that is what moves it from history to present tense impact in our own life, because he took what Ever, has ever been wrong, dysfunctional, broken, fractured, and he put it on Jesus and on his body. The disciples had never, ever seen Jesus in the state that he was in, not only, like Caleb said, the cross looked like a failure, but way before the cross, in the garden, they had never seen Jesus upset. They'd never seen him at a loss. They'd never seen him, when I say upset, he, they never saw him at a loss of what to do. Anxious and, and distressed in the way that he was, that he sweat blood. This is how they saw him. If you'll go to these, he arose and rebuked the wind. I like the scriptures, uh, the words that are used in the scripture. It always shows Jesus in a stance of dominance or superiority over, uh, over the situation. It says that he stood still for two blind men and he commanded them to come. He stood before Pilate with such a presence that Pilate knew that he, had not, he was not a man of compromise. He stood in the temple to read. He stood over Peter's mother-in-law and commanded a fever to go. He stood outside the plain to teach and heal. He stood with Moses and Elijah on the mountain. He stood and commanded blind men to come near and, and be healed. He stood in the midst of them and said, Peace be still. He stood and cried with a loud voice in a city street, in Jerusalem street, Come to me and drink. He stood on the shore after resurrection and told the disciples to put their nets on the other side. 
he stood. They'd always seen him in this place of, of supreme dominance. Dominance in the sense of instead of being dominated, he always, always brought order and health, life to every situation he was in. But in Matthew 26 and verse 35 or 39, this is what he was doing in the garden. He was not standing before God that he had a right to stand before. He always had this beautiful relationship between him and the Father. But in the garden, what it says in verse 39, he went on a little further and he bowed his face to the ground, praying, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. This is the if it be thy will. Jesus knew what the will of God was. What he was wondering, the if part, is if there was another way. He said, if there is another way. He knew the will of God was for him to take this. If there was another way. Any area that we are not sure of the will of God, and it isn't written in a verse of Scripture, and it's not clarified in Scripture, you can talk to God and ask him to clarify his will. And you know what? He'll do it. God will make his will known. We've used, we've used Colossians, the first chapter, and starting in verse 9, as a prayer that we can pray to be filled with the knowledge of his will. But that position of bowing rather than trying to be, to, to be the know-it-all in every situation, if you don't know, then bow. Bow and ask him to show you. Bow your will like Jesus did. Bow our preferences like Jesus did. And God will show his will. One thing you can count on about the will of God is you don't come up short in the end. Because what happens when you humble yourself under the will of God, it is a positioning for God to exalt you. Hallelujah. You never have to worry that saying, God, I want to do what you want me to do in that job decision, in that relationship decision, in whatever decision it is, I want to do what you want me to do. You have to know God will not destroy your life in saying yes to him. When you say yes to Jesus, even if it's with tears on, on certain situations, if you say yes to Jesus, you are positioning yourself in the hand of God where God can exalt you to a place you could never get on your own. So do we pray a prayer of consecration and dedication? Is it right for us to? Yes. Yes, it is. Where the will of God is known in the Bible, find the will of God. But if you don't know it, it's right to pray the will of, that God's will would be done and surrender to that will. 
I'd like you to read in um, verse 45 and 46 of Matthew 26. It says, then he came to his disciples. This is at the end of his prayer of praying three times. He said, he came to his disciples and said, go ahead and sleep. He tried to wake them up over and over and they couldn't. Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up! Let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. That sounds so confident. It's not the sound that it was when he was on his face before God saying, whatever you want me to do. That's when he humbled. What you have to know that happens when you humble under the hand of God is you come up to a confidence that you cannot imitate. You can't buy you can't get it from getting all your friends to agree with you. You cannot, you cannot uh, in any way fabricate it. When you come under the will of God, the hand of God, to do what he wants you to do, you come up out of that time in God where you know and you're confident that Jesus he never whinged. He didn't cry anymore after the garden. He came up out of that thing. He went through the horrible tor torture that he did, but all the way to the cross, he wasn't going, I wonder if I did the right thing. I wonder if I did the right thing. I hope this is the right thing. Oh, man, this is getting hard. This is getting this. This is really bad. No, it was settled in the garden. When they were beating and putting all those stripes on him, he wasn't like, Ha, 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 get me out of this. I'm calling angels. I can get out of this. No, it was settled. The will of God was settled on his face. Some things you can't settle with friends, chatting and processing them with them. What do you think I ought to do? What do you think I ought to do? Take it to the floor. Take it to the floor. Put your face down and ask Jesus. Talk to him. Say, you're the Lord. I call you the Lord of my life. What do you want me to do? I will do it. You come up into a confidence. I, I, I love this. True humility produces true boldness. True boldness. Being under his hand makes you confident before man. I'm telling you, when Jesus stood before all of his accusers, he stood before Pilate, he stood before Herod, he wasn't like... Oh. He stood because he knew he was the right man in the right place doing the right thing, even if it looked so wrong. And it didn't feel good. I just want to do what feels good. Hmm, that may end you in a bad place. <laughs> true humility produces true boldness. True boldness is different than brash, being brash, crass, arrogant, or cocky. 
Jesus wasn't cocky. He wasn't brash. He wasn't arrogant. He was not lifting up himself. He wasn't swaggering. But was he confident? So much so that Psalm 16 says, and then it was, it was quoted again in Acts, the 16th chapter. He said, I know you won't leave my soul in hell. Therefore, I can praise you. Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Humbling ourselves under the, this prayer of consecration and dedication is underrated. If you're getting all wiggly about different things and different decisions and you're finding yourself being really unconfident around people, around the devil, around God, humble under the hand of God. Find what his will says in the book. Know it. Know the Bible. Know the truth about whatever it is. And then get under his hand. I'm telling you what. I believe in these last days we're going to see a humbled church. Why? That can sound terrible and pathetic. Humble, being humble is not being pathetic. It's just knowing who God is and that you're not him. And that you really worship God and under the fear of God, you come under his hand. But what emerges, none of us in this room is better than Jesus. Philippians, the second chapter, said, have this same mind as Jesus had in him. Jesus modeled this kind of prayer, this kind of life, but he also modeled the kind of boldness that comes when you're under submission to God. Guys, I want to pray a prayer for you today, but it's not my prayer that's going to help you. Nobody could pray for Jesus. Nobody could pray a consecration prayer for Jesus. Nobody can pray a consecration prayer for you. It's your prayer. And it's a good one. It's not the only one you'll pray. You'll pray these prayers, living a consecrated life. Dear Heavenly Father, as we, you know, coming up into Easter, we look at this important time between the Father and the Son in the garden. Jesus, thank you for modeling for us the exquisite trust that you have in your Father. Father, I pray that in these days, in the days that are to come, that you would show us the pure delight and freedom that comes when we're under your authority, when we're under your hand, when we're under your will, when we're under what you have to say on every situation. 
it never diminishes us. It never makes us less than who we're supposed to be. It never strips us. It always positions us to be lifted up. I ask you to help each of us follow Jesus in Gethsemane. <laughs> in Jesus' precious name. Thank you, Jesus. And Father God, I thank you for every person that is here. I'm not the judge of any person's heart that's in this room or watching online. Whether you're online or in this room, we're gathered in your name. But if there's anyone who hasn't surrendered their life to Jesus, trying to do life on their own, not sure how they're going to make it on the other side of death, maybe hoping good works outweigh bad works. I ask you today that today will be the day that they put themselves under the work that Jesus did for them. By just saying, I accept it. I accept it. I'm not going to try to save myself. I'm not going to try to get better on my own. I just accept Jesus as my Savior. Pray this prayer with me. Dear Father, thank you. Everybody join me. And those that need to pray this prayer because you've not ever prayed it, pray this prayer with me. Dear God, thank you. Thank you for your love for me. That you sent Jesus to be punished for my sin and to bear my sickness and weakness. Jesus, I accept what you did for me. I ask you to come into my heart and be the Lord of my life. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Hallelujah. Can we just put our hands up to him? Thank you, Lord. Because I'm hearing the Holy Spirit say something. Just keep your eyes closed and receive this. There is an identity, a true identity of yourself that will never be experienced or enjoyed outside of submission to him. There will be a strength and a confidence and you will rise into purpose for only in that strength and only in the confidence between you and God are you able to achieve your purpose in life. He has prepared a garden for you. He has prepared a place and a time for you to talk to him. And the Holy Spirit will alert you to it. Follow him there. And you will find, you will find the joy. You will find the freedom. You will find a confidence in knowing that you are in his will, in his plan, and in his purpose for your life. Praise the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your purpose for our lives. 
We thank you for it. In Jesus' precious name. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You know, I, I saw something that I, the Lord had reminded me of here maybe last week or the week before. When Tony and I lived in Frigini, we were praying, and I had, a, I had a vision, and it was of youth. And they were unconfident, youth and young adult type age people, young. Uh, but it could, this applies across the board. It's just, that it was just who I saw in this vision. And I saw them, I saw them just kind of milling, kind of wandering around and, and wandering around, stumbling, sometimes walking with people and then sometimes walking alone. And then something started happening from God and they started congregating. And it made a... Uh, I don't know what that word, it's, it's like a gravitational pull. It, it drew, it started drawing them in and it started collecting like a magnet does to those little shavings. They just started collecting and they started marching to a different sound. You couldn't hear the sound with these ears. It came on the inside of them but it made them march in a cadence. And they marched and they marched and they marched. And the, what ended up happening in this is their faces turned, they changed. Their faces morphed into lions. Just the most amazing thing. I forgot about it until just these last few days while I've been praying for this age group of people. It changed them. And they were unafraid of anything. And they just marched over everything. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Can we be in agreement about that? That God is doing that. Stand up on your feet. Let's just thank Him. As for me and my house, we're serving the Lord. The, the, the kids in our, in our church family, kids that we love. Let's lift up our hands for the, for the youth and the young adults, the generation. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Mighty, mighty, mighty young men and women. Mighty, fearless, because they're hearing something from God. If you would like more information or resources on this or other topics, or if you would like to sow into this ministry financially to help us share messages just like this one each week, please visit our website at brainer.org.au.